Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. I hope that didn't blow out everybody's ears like it did mine here. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, September 5th, 5th, yeah, 2014. Okay, this week is episode 338. We're coming to you from Studio D at the IAQ Radio, IAQ Training Institute, World Headquarters in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and here with me in the studio is our engineer, Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon. Good day, Jess. Hard at work trying to put that clip together. It didn't quite work the way I wanted, but we'll get it. Back in Studio C in McKee's Rocks is my co-host and today's guest, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hi, Joe. Good. Glad to be here. Good day, Cliff. Great to have you joining us. I hope for the roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich. Well, I don't see him yet, but you never know. Today's segments are going to include this interview with the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. We're going to talk fire restoration today, and I think it's a topic that doesn't get enough attention. I know Cliff agrees. Before we get started, let's take 20 seconds to thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at Clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X dot com and C-M-M-Online dot com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, so you can always download the show by going to iaqradio.com and follow the link that says go to show. And, of course, you can get the show from iTunes. You can also stream it right from our homepage. We also have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com all right let's turn it over to the z-man for his own iaq radio trivia question for today thanks joe win a cool prize by out competing fellow iaq radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answers easy, either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Randy Nunley with Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions in Shelton, Connecticut, identifying the state of Connecticut as the state in which America's first trade association was founded. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, September 5th, 2014, has been sponsored by Triska, 
the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsba.org. Now for this week's trivia question. According to the National Fire Protection Association, between 2007 and 2011, how many structure fires occurred in educational properties in the United States on average per year? Back to you, Joe. Hmm. Made it a little tough this week, huh? All right. So today our guest is uh, my co-host and my partner, Cliff Zlotnick. Cliff's a 40-year veteran of the cleaning and restoration industry and president emeritus of Microband Systems, oftentimes referred to as the godfather of the disaster restoration industry. He was a pioneer in the development of cleaning products, equipment, and techniques for the industry. He's been awarded numerous industry awards and served as an officer and member of the board of directors for many industry associations. I was kind of going down through the CV here earlier today, and a lot of interesting um, background for Cliff. Uh, he's got the numerous different certifications, like the Certified Restorer and the Water Loss Specialist and the Certified Mechanical Hygiene one from RIA, and then he's got the CMRS and the CIEC from what uh, used to be the IAQA, but now has moved over to the uh, in, uh, American Council for Accredited Certification. Uh, he's a military veteran. He's been training around the world, actually, for you know going on 40 years here. And uh, he's also been very involved with both the Restoration Industry Association at the time called ASCAR, the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration, and, of course, uh, the IICRC, the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. So... Cliff's been all around, and uh, he's been, you know, uh, helping this industry grow for years and, and studying. But, you know, one of the things he also does is he goes out and he, he takes these courses. I mean, he's got every kind of, you know, IICRC course there is. And he gets out and, and, and learns about things like, you know, fine art and photo restoration and all kinds of different um, topics that sometimes people don't think about when it comes to restoration. I've got some uh, intro music for Cliff. Fire, fire, fire. Cliff, um, you know, we, we had the conference, the Healthy Building Professional Summit, that was two weeks back. Now, you did a great presentation for indoor environmental professionals to try and get them a little more aware of what fire restoration is, how it's done, why it's done, etc. And, and I got the impression from your presentation that fire restoration doesn't get as much respect as you think it should. Can you kind of uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Joe, I think that, you know, what's happened is that the industry is just obsessed with mold and that, you know, mold gets all the attention and people don't think about other potential risks and hazards and restoration challenges. You know, I didn't, I, I probably should have asked you to look into this beforehand. I don't know if you know off the top of your head. How many fire jobs a year, I mean, occur in the United States. I know that was one of the, the trivia question was 
just related to educational institutions, I believe. But do you have know off the top of your head how many fire jobs there are a year? Well, um, you know, thousands. You know, many, many. You know, many, many thousands. I mean, I can tell you that. You know, in terms of today's trivia question, which deals with, you know, what we're looking for is how many fires there were in educational facilities. You know, this is schools, and there are thousands of school fires per year. Every year, we've got thousands of these fires. Now, when you and I, you know, and again, you have thousands of church and you know synagogue and you know religious building fires per year, and then certainly homeowning, you know, uh, homes, residential homes is going to be you know significantly more than that, but just many thousands. Okay, and of the typical restoration guy, let's go back thirty, forty years when you were first starting in the industry was fire the main restoration category that people were primarily in business for? Absolutely. Okay. You know, typically, uh, you know, there weren't even um, categories in the yellow pages uh, for water damage restoration. You know, it was strictly fire damage. And then I think, um, you know, based on, you know, Lloyd Weaver's, uh, you know, concepts for on-location water damage restoration and the pioneering work he did to you know, teach people how to dry on location. You know, water damage, um, you know, grew in terms of, of prominence. And then I think because of pricing issues, uh, fire restoration is very, very labor-intensive. Water damage generally much less so that, Contractors had a tendency to follow the money. You know, doing water damage restoration is a lot less labor intensive. You have equipment that does a lot of the work, and it's significantly more profitable. I mean, when you can rent a, a piece of drying equipment for you know twenty five, thirty, forty, fifty dollars a day for you know some for a fan that just blows air around, uh, pretty profitable. Now. You know, this this leads to another, and, and maybe off of what we intended to talk about, but I think it's important. Um, it appears to me, in my limited knowledge of the restoration industry, that the insurance companies are kind of pushing back on that whole concept of, you know, you're going to put in a certain number of fans and dehues, and you're going to get this daily rate, and you're not going to necessarily have to do as much labor uh, as it would you would for a fire job. Do you see that, do you feel that, Restoration contractors should be looking more closely at getting more involved in fire-related projects, or um, maybe focusing more of their marketing, etc., on fire-related projects as the water gets tighter and tighter. Well, I think fire restoration is always going to be there, and if you want enough work, you know, to keep your crews busy year-round, uh, you know, fire restoration you know, is going to offer additional categories of work. Um, you know, it comes with, you know, the need to have the equipment, the need to have the training, the need to have the expertise uh, in order to do it. But certainly, um, you know, I would not consider someone a restoration contractor that didn't do fire restoration. And I'm curious if you think that as, as time goes on, and we have more restoration contractors that focus just on mold and, and in some cases water, you know, water damage is a big one and then mold. And, and I think most of them do 
fire, at least uh, all the big guys do. But I'm wondering if you think maybe we're losing some generational expertise when it comes to doing fire uh, restoration. Uh, what what do you think may not be being passed on? Well, I think that you know the the, the, the techniques for cleaning uh, are really not being passed on. I mean, I can tell you, you know, when I owned and, and ran Unsmoke, we had a lot of products that we sold that were specialty products. And I can tell you that, you know, after I sold the company, those products were discontinued because they didn't sell enough of them on an annual basis. You know, we provided and made those products not necessarily, you know, to try to make a whole lot of money, but it was to give a contractor the ability to do magic in the client's home and to save something that they would have a tremendous sentimental attachment to, you know, something like photographs, uh, you know, things like that, you know, those Kodak moments. Uh, maybe all that they have of relatives that have, you know, lived and passed on. You know, can you give us an example? It sounds like that was one of the products. You had something that helped with photos. Is there another product you can tell us about that is not even available anymore? We had other products that were for, you know, used in water damage for conserving, uh, you know, soft goods, you know, to, to, made to eliminate musty odors and, and soft goods. There were products that we made for corrosion control, uh, demoisturization, uh, you know, that were foggable, uh, that would prevent corrosion, that would, you know, displace moisture. You know, a lot of these products just, just went away. I would imagine, too, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that, that fire jobs are oftentimes also water jobs, and, and you know, because they're, they're putting out the fire with typically with water. Um, so you're kind of doing both on, on these fire jobs? You're, you're both drying and cleaning up after the fire? Well, you know, certainly the majority of fires are extinguished and suppressed with water. You know, not all of them. You know, for instance, you know, if you have a fast food restaurant and they have a grease fire, they have these ANSEL systems which, you know, uh, uh, you know powder is utilized to uh, suppress the fire. So, yeah, there are a few of those. You know, certainly in some computer rooms and where there's sensitive electronic equipment, they may use halon or something like that uh, to suppress the uh, the fire. But certainly water is used in the majority of cases. And uh, so because of that, every fire that's suppressed with water is going to create some sort of, of water damage. And uh, that needs to be dealt with as well. So the guys doing fire restoration have to be able to do water damage restoration. There's no way around that. Whereas with water damage restoration, you don't necessarily have to do fire as well. I would, I would say that that would be an accurate statement. All right. Now let's, let's go into a little bit about um, the, the fact the the insurance on on fire damage. This is something that's always been interesting to me. As I understand it, you know, fire is the reason we have homeowners insurance in the first place. That you know, that was the main thing that was covered in the past. It since has kind of morphed into some other covered perils and events. But you know, fire was at the uh, at the root of all these uh, insurance policies. When it comes to a fire, who determines when the cleaning and odor removal is complete? Well, 
I don't know if there's a specific person that does that, but it would seem to me that the best way to answer that question would really be a committee, Joe. And, you know, first of all, you have the restoration contractor. Uh, his client is the homeowner or property owner. You know, he has to satisfy that owner in terms of things being clean and th- in terms of things being odor-free. And certainly there, there's an insurance component, you know, where there's an agent and an adjuster who were involved with the sale of the policy and, you know, the adjustment, uh, you know, in the event of the claim. So they can be involved with it as well. But typically, I think it boils down to the contractor satisfying the property owner. Yeah, because I'm I'm wondering, you know, you and I both know that last uh, two weeks ago we had a um, a guest come to the the summit, and they had been in a situation where there was a fire, and they had a very rare um, disease within the family, mast cell disorder. I, I don't recall the exact name of it, and they were really having trouble getting back into their home. And and in talking to you about that situation, I kind of got the impression that. After any fire, regardless of, of what home it is, etc., there's going to be some residue remaining when you're done with the cleaning. I don't see how you can possibly get every single, you know, tiny little bit of soot or um, debris that resulted from the fire removed from the home unless you just tear it down and start all over again. Is that accurate? To th- do, you, do you feel the same way? I'm not sure, Joe. Uh, you know, I think we may have a different, differing opinion on that. You know, it, it seems to me that the level of cleaning that's done for mold remediation is pretty similar to the level of cleaning that would be done, you know, following fire damage. And I, and I would even say that in certain situations, in, in fire damage situations, they'll go further. Uh, and the reason for that is in certain mold remediation documents, in certain courses, you know, there's a prohibition against the use of water. Uh, you know, in, in cleaning and in fire damage situations, you know, there's a lot of wet cleaning done. I think that, you know, in a fire, you know, following a fire damage situation, it's most important for whoever is making the inspection of that property, uh, they need to determine where the, the residue is, and then they need to deal with that residue. They need to remove it uh, in certain situations. Uh, it might be more financially uh, feasible to uh, encapsulate it in certain situations, but you know they need to deal with that residue. If there's a lot of residue uh, remaining, uh, that can pose problems in terms of odor, uh, in terms of resoiling, uh, potentially health issues, so on and so forth. Well, let's talk. Uh, let's go back to what you were talking about with respect to the origin. Uh, of the fire, why why is origin so important when it comes to assessing and then cleaning up these fire restoration projects? Well, you know, in terms of origin, I think what's important is certain parts of the country, you know, such as in in California, they have a lot of wildfires, and you know what happens is the source of the fire is outside of the home, so the path of smoke. If you've got soot on the inside of your home, it had to get there somehow. You know, what did that soot pass through in order to get through the home? You know, for instance, if you have siding or something like that on the outside of the house, that soot had to work its way, you know, through that building envelope in order to get into the house. 
So as far as the origin goes, my biggest concern is origin in relation to building envelope. You know, was the, did the fire occur inside the envelope? Then you really want to follow the path of the fire and determine, uh, you know, what areas are contaminated, what areas are damaged, and just be sure that those areas are dealt with and, you know, cleaned, restored, refinished, replaced, you know, whatever's required. All right, before we go further, let's let's get some uh, vocabulary straight here. What's the difference between smoke and soot? Well, they're kind of the same. Uh, uh, you know, soot, well, smoke is the visual component uh, of the fire. And what happens is smoke is made up of millions and billions and trillions of particles of soot. Okay, so... Basically, that's just the the smoke is all the different particles together. We see that, and then the soot is the little different. You know, it's the, all the particles, but after they've deposited somewhere, I guess, um, and you no longer see that. I, I guess you know, smoke is what you see during the fire, and soot is what is what makes up the smoke, but, you know, after the fire's extinguished, you don't see smoke anymore. At that particular point, you know, what you're going to see is is soot or smoke residue. Okay, okay. And when these, when, when folks go in to do fire damage uh, restoration, do you think that should be hazmat work? Like, should they get extra pay and um, have certain level of training maybe beyond what's typically available out there now? Well, I think that they should receive, I, I do believe that they're removing a hazardous material. Uh, I do believe that they need to wear personal protective equipment. I do believe that workers, when wearing certain types of personal protective equipment, are stressed more physically. It's, it's more demanding. And, you know, you're working harder, you may be perspiring, and, and, and so on and so forth. So I do believe it's hazardous uh, material. I, I think that they should get paid accordingly, uh, you know, for doing that. Certainly they should not get paid any less than someone doing mold remediation. I get the impression that, and you've seen a lot of these jobs, that um, a lot of people are doing this type of work without much PPE at all, if any. Yes, that's unfortunate. Uh, I, I see that. And I think what happens is, you know, going back to mold again, there's just so much focus uh, on mold and that it's hazardous. And, I, and you know, I, I think mold is maximized, I think, in terms of hazard, uh, in terms of risk. And I think in many situations, fire residue and fire-related particulate is minimized. But, you know, the government knows that, you know, fire-related contaminants are an issue. Um, they, I guess it's just, I don't know, the industry has just allowed it to happen, I think, unfortunately. And are there any studies or, you know, um, data that, that we know about the types of health effects that people that clean up fire restoration, do, do fire restoration work? Are, are more likely to develop, or is there has there been any good studies on that? Do you know if I am unaware of any specific studies, Joe? You know, on fire restoration workers. However, there certainly are studies uh, that have been done on firefighters, and that they certainly have 
many more respiratory problems than uh, the general public, and it's based upon uh, you know what they're dealing with, even though they're protected. Hmm. You know, I think both of us know from our experience in, in safety that you know personal protective equipment is really a second layer of protection. You know, we'd rather have engineering controls and so on and so forth in order to you know minimize or eliminate the need for actual personal protective equipment. All right, now what what type of engineering controls? do you suggest people have on a fire job? Well, I think there are a couple. I think, you know, one is ventilation. You know, if you have the ability to uh, pump contaminated air out of the building and pump fresh air into the building, I think that that's certainly uh, a good idea. I also think that air filtration devices, you know, HEPA filters, I think that's a good idea. Uh, I think in addition to the air filtration devices, if you have some that, you know, have activated carbon in them, I think that that's a good idea because that carbon is going to adsorb or cling to, uh, you know, gases that are in the air that, you know, can be irritants or can be, you know, respiratory hazards. So I'm not sure you help me with this. Is that, has the use of air filtration devices, like, has that not typically been occurring on fire restoration projects? Do you know if it's taught to use those, or is that something that uh, is up to the contractor? Well, I hope it's taught you know, to utilize those. But again, I think in most situations, it gets up to the, to the contractor. And a lot of times, contractors don't want to do something unless they're going to get paid for it. So I think uh, I think contractors would certainly put in air filtration devices if they didn't get any pushback. You know, from insurance adjusters uh, for paying for them. Yeah, and I think when it comes to these air filtration devices, you know, if you think about it, you know, the the policyholder, property owner, you know, should be entitled to having the indoor uh, environment, the air in their home, as clean, if not cleaner, than it was before the fire. And I'm not sure exactly how you're going to be able to do some of these things, you know, without. Uh, you know, HEPA vacuums and HEPA filtration, you know, air filtration devices and, uh, you know, some adsorption, uh, you know, materials such as activated carbon, you know, being utilized in the home. You know, I, well, I'm going to jump over that. I I just think that, uh, you know, whether or not, they're getting paid for using these. If it if it lowers the exposure for their employees, I, I think they're required to do it. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, the difference is um, there still is this. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's still a cost factor, Joe. I think you and I would always do the right thing because we're conscious of it. Uh, I think in certain situations, you know, with limited. Uh, have to filter life, you know, so many hours, you know, uh, of life that these guys may not do it if they're not going to get paid for it. And it's, they're not cheap, I, I agree. And I would imagine, I don't know how much experience you have with this, but I would imagine fire jobs would be would would cause HEPA filters to get loaded pretty quickly. It seems to me there's a lot of small particulate, very fine particulate that would get into your HEPAs and might cause them to get overloaded pretty quickly but i don't know the, the same is true with drywall dust for instance so um I, I just think it's something that 
we should be seeing a lot of if we're not right now. Hopefully we are. What are, are, are there? Here's another issue I wanted to ask you about. Why isn't there a standard on fire restoration? We've got a water damage standard. We got a mold standard. We got carpet cleaning standards. We got all these standards. And I don't know of any on fire restoration. What has stopped that? Well, I, I think that um, many of the standards that we have are very prescriptive standards. And I really have a problem with someone who knows less about my business than I do telling me how to do my job. You know, whether that's a consultant who, uh, you know, stands on one of these standards committees or it's the insurance adjuster. I think that if you look at your house, I mean, if you just imagine uh, being, a, you know, the jolly green giant who could lift up a house, turn it upside down, and all these different things would, would fall out, uh, all different types of personal property and, and so on and so forth, in this fire standard, you would need to, um, you know, deal with all of these issues. I really think that, uh, the Restoration Industry Association, when Martin King was there, he had uh, a fire restoration guideline that I really thought was excellent. And, you know, what it did was, you know, kind of provide different options of how to do things and, you know, create some general expectations. And I think that, it, that it's fine. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that would probably be the industry's fire restoration uh guideline at this particular point. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think that RIA may be working on a new fire restoration standard. So I'm not sure how far the progress has come on it, but I just think it's uh, a real big task. I, you know, I think oh, you're correct, RIA and maybe IESO, and I, I think they may be working together, and they may have brought in a third party at this point, I don't know, but hopefully that's something that we can start to push a little bit. I mean, there's there's no reason why we shouldn't have a good fire standard at this point in time. I mean, I hear that complaint all the time. Why, you know, why don't we have one? And, and um, it doesn't make sense to me. It's something that we need, that the industry should should have, and that uh, hopefully we'll see some progress on here in the near future. All right, Cliff, we're Right at halftime, we're going to stop for 90 seconds here. Thank our sponsors, who we appreciate so much here at IAQ Radio. We'll be back for the second half of our interview with the Z-Man on fire restoration. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers 
to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half with the Z-Man on fire restoration. And thanks to one of our listeners, uh, they confirmed that RIA and IESO are working on a fire standard. And there have been some subcommittees formed uh, by the consensus body, and they are still looking for volunteers. So that's good. Um, good to hear. Now... The other thing I'd like to bring up that I was a little surprised by, Cliff, when you mentioned this, I hadn't thought about it, um, that because smoke residue is acetic, how do you uh, stop the corrosion that can take place? I didn't think about that, you know, that that besides removing this debris and soot and all these other uh, contaminants that are resulting from the fire, you've also got to worry about the corrosion that can take place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well... Most smoke residue is acidic in nature. I think some is more acidic than, I think some residues are more acidic than others, and, and some of the worst ones tend to be those that are plastic related, uh, particularly PVC plastic. You know, when PVC plastic burns, um, what happens is chlorides uh, can combine with moisture in the air, and the residue can be very, very acidic. You know, I'll never forget, I, I was called out to do fire restoration in a uh, distributor of kitchen equipment. They sold stainless steel. It was a Hobart kitchen equipment distributor, really, really high-end uh, kitchen equipment. And I was there about eight or nine hours after the fire. And when I went in, uh, all of the equipment that was in there ended up being a total loss. It was the worst case of corrosion that I'd ever seen. I mean, there was significant uh, pitting uh, visible, you know, within just a few hours. So, um, you know, this can occur. There are a couple of uh, tactics that a restorer can utilize. You know, one would be uh, ammonia, uh, an ammonia water solution. You know, if the surface can handle it. In many situations, uh, ammonia and water, uh, particularly uh, distilled water, deionized water, uh, can uh, lower that pH. Uh, some other things that can be done would be to shut off additional moisture and shut off air, and that can be done by some sort of coating. You know, it could be Vaseline. It could be some sort of you know, aerosol coating, WD-40, uh, you know, something like that, you know, can be utilized to coat uh, surfaces to, you know, prevent oxygen. All right. Now, you mentioned plastic fire, and, and I think that's another important topic that we should cover real quick here, and that is 
not only do you have to know the origin of the fire, but you need to know what was on fire, as I understand it. And, and it makes a big difference in, in how you're going to proceed with the cleaning and deodorization. Can you talk about the major categories of fire? Well, um, I think before we do that, I, I, I don't think it's as hard as one might think, Joe. You know, typically when you walk into a fire damage situation, you know, I would always want to start my inspection at the, at the point of origin, you know, where the fire occurred. And most of the time you can get a pretty good idea of what was on fire just by looking at the general debris, you know, in, in that area. Uh, in terms of types of fires, there are probably three that are most common, you know, with natural substance or a wood fire, uh, you know, is pretty common. You know, the residue in that situation tends to be dry, uh, powdery in color. It'll be gray to black. Uh, you know, typically um, it, it's pretty easy to clean up residue-wise. I would say it's the one fire that's probably the easiest residue to clean up. Uh, synthetic fires tend to be the residue uh, is going to be black. It's going to be oily. Uh, oftentimes it smudges. Um, you know, it can be more challenging, uh, you know, to deal with. Uh, another one would be protein. A lot of your kitchen fires fall into this category. You know, they generally happen a, a lot of, around holidays. You know, people will cook something like a turkey or a duck, and somehow they misprogram the oven, and, uh, you know, what they end up with is carbonizing the bird that they're, or roast or whatever that they're trying to cook, and you end up with a 20 or 30 pound ham or turkey evenly distributed over every surface in the house. And in those situations, you're going to have, you know, a, a greasy residue on all the surfaces, and uh, in many situations, the residue may have a yellowish color or uh, yellowish, brownish, pinkish color in those situations. You know, one thing that's important to mention is that oftentimes uh, the, the, the property owner will get confused. Uh, the house will fill up with black smoke, and they expect the residue in the house to be black. Uh, that is not uh, that is not the case. Um, you know, typically the color of the smoke and the color of the residue can be two entirely different things. A good way to demonstrate that is really with a cigarette. Uh, you know, if you take a cigarette and you light the cigarette uh, and you ask people what color it is, they'll say it's blue, they'll say it's white, they'll say, uh, you know, it's gray. And when you take that cigarette and if you would inhale it through a Kleenex or through a paper towel, uh, the residue on that paper towel is going to be anything but uh, yellow or, or, or blue or gray. That residue is definitely going to be brownish in color. And anyone that ever smoked in their car or has ever you know, seen smoke uh, you know, in a bar, in a restaurant, you, know, you look at the ceiling tile, you can see that it's just, uh, you know, from cigarette smoke, you're going to end up with just this brownish residue. So the color of the smoke and the color of the residue can be two entirely different things. All right. I, I got a couple of texts, but I'm going to let you know. I'm definitely going to get to some questions here. But let me let me uh, finish kind of setting up the fire. What's the difference between a low oxygen and a high oxygen fire, and why is that important? 
And that's a really important question, Joe. Uh, it really is how much oxygen is available to the fire, uh, you know, when, when it's burning. And generally the worst, the most odorous fires, those that are m most difficult to clean, most difficult to deodorize, are going to be low oxygen fires. You know, they just smolder for hours, they build up pressure a little bit at a time, and they literally push the smoke into all sorts of cracks, crevices, nooks, crannies, uh, horrible, and very, very difficult to, uh, to clean and uh, deodorize. So a, a long smoldering fire is more difficult than a, a hot flaming fire to clean up after, I guess. Absolutely, right. Uh, the residue, you know, typically is much, much more difficult to remove, and in most situations you're going to have smoke residue in these smoldering fires inside of interstitial cavities. I see. Now, you mentioned pressure. How, how do heat pressure and magnetism affect smoke behavior? So you got the the heat of the fire, the, the pressures that are created by both the fire and also just the natural environment, I guess, and then magnetism. How do they affect smoke behavior? Well, I think what happens is that, you know, we know that warm air rises. Uh, as warm air rises, it's going to carry with it, you know, whatever contaminants happen to be in the air. You know, as the pressure builds within, you know, within an environment, within a closed environment, the tendency is going to be greater to push smoke into cracks and crevices. Uh, metals, uh, in particular, having, uh, are, smoke is attracted to metals. And it's attracted to metals by magnetism. And one of the things that will happen is generally wherever you have metals, you know, particularly metals that are raw, they're, they're uncoated, you know, pipes, uh, things such as that, plumbing pipes, uh, heating pipes, uh, smoke is going to be attracted to those surfaces. Smoke's also attracted to cold surfaces. You know, typically if it's a surface where there's a great temperature difference, such as windows, uh, you're going to generally find more smoke on cold surfaces than you might on uh, warmer surfaces. What about hot fire versus a non-hot fire? You talked a little bit about that. Are there other things we should look for? Well, I think what happens when we're talking about hot smoke and cold smoke is that, you know, all smoke originates as hot smoke, and the further away that it gets from the point of origin, it begins to cool off. And what, what happens really is, is deposition. You know, typically hot smoke particles are going to deposit on uh, vertical surfaces. They're going to deposit on, on walls. Uh, they're going to deposit on ceilings. Typically, uh, as smoke cools, uh, if those particles don't hit a surface, don't contact the surface that they can possibly stick to, they're going to fall out onto horizontal surfaces. So generally following the fire, you're going to have more smoke residue on horizontal surfaces than you're going to have anywhere else. And you're going to typically have more smoke odor on those horizontal surfaces than you're going to have anywhere else. I'm wondering, is there any difference with how the fire, you know, most are put out with water, obviously, but, but with how much water, I mean, is it a problem when they use too much water? Does that make it more difficult to clean up, or is there really basically no difference? Well, I think water's water. I think the things that we need to think about is that, 
you know, when they're pouring water on something that's burning, number one, they can create steam and, you know, can raise the, the humidity within the house and, you know, high humidity can cause some issues. Uh, that water being used to put to suppress the fire is going to pick up residue and it's also going to pick up odor. So wherever that water goes, it has the potential of carrying residue. It has the potential of carrying odor with it. And, you know, just restorers just need to be able to deal with it. All right. You, you mentioned odor a few times. We, we, we have to talk, and, and I can see now, Cliff, this is going to have to be a two-show deal here. There's no way we'll get through everything I want to learn here in one show. But anyway, what are the three types of smoke odors? Well, I think we've been through those, Joe. Okay. Uh, synthetic, uh, natural, and protein. And they tend to smell a little bit different. Uh, as well, you know, burnt meat, poultry. I think you know we know what that smells like. I think most of us know what a wood fire smells like, and what some of us might might not have experienced is you know what pla- you know burnt plastic uh, smells like or burnt rubber. So uh, the, you know the three types of smoke odors kind of deal with the three types of smoke residues. And you know, in most fires, you'll have more than one substance burning. It's really the, the predominant one that's going to determine, uh, you know, how we clean it and, and how we would classify it. Okay. Now, before I get into the cleaning and, and the odor removal, one more thing about the, the properties that are left behind after a, a fire. What makes charred materials, if they're more problematic, I'm, I, I'm not sure. I think I'm, I'm accurate in saying more problematic when it comes to odors. Um, and, and I guess the cleaning, too, it makes it more problematic in several ways. Well, charred materials, if we take something like wood, which would probably be the most common uh, charred material, you know, most people would think that wood that's burnt would be reduced in surface area. And that's really not the truth. You know, what happens is charred wood has much greater surface area than wood that's not charred. So because there's much greater surface area uh, there, there can be a lot of odor there as well. So you're going to have a lot of odor source in that charred material. So typically it's going to just take more deodorization in order to get control of it because you just have much more surface area, and in, and in most situations, you know, charge not something that we really want to leave behind. It's going to have to be dealt with and, and removed. So it either needs to be scraped off, some sort of abrasive method uh, in order to remove the, you know, the charring, such as, you know, you can do sandblasting, there's dry ice, there is this new eco-blasting system, uh, you know, that's out there that can handle multimedia. So it's, you're just going to try to remove uh, you know, you want to remove as much of the char as possible. Uh-huh. And in certain situations, uh, building code gets involved because they're going to tell you how much of a particular uh, piece of framing material uh, is legal uh, to remove. And in certain situations, you may need to replace uh, that piece of framing or do what's called sistering or scabbing, which is where we uh, install another one next to it. I'm glad you clarified that for me because I I always wondered, you know, why we talk so much about char when my thought was, hey, it's got to be removed anyway. And and you're kind of agreeing with me, I think, on that, that in most cases you're going to remove it. 
but it does cause additional uh, cleaning and restoration issues for the people doing the work. All right, let's go to smoke odor. All right, does the smoke odor, well, yeah, let's start with how it deposits. Does it deposit evenly? No, generally it doesn't. You know, it, you know, one of the things that I mentioned, and I'll just re- reiterate it, is you know, in a fire situation, generally speaking, the single greatest source of smoke odor is going to be uh, charred materials and horizontal surfaces. You know, more of your smoke residue is going to fall out on horizontal surfaces than anywhere else, and I think that horizontal surface is something that is very, very commonly overlooked. Now, what are the when we get into the odor removal? What are the steps of doing odor removal? Well, I think it depends really uh, on the process that you're going to use, and I, I think that there are single step uh, odor removal processes. And in my opinion, smoke odor is a complex odor. And you generally need to have multiple steps and multiple procedures in order to uh, eliminate it uh, successfully. So, uh, you know, what I always like to do, and the reason I like to do it, it was the, the, the only thing I, I, I was able to do that worked. And I certainly have tried, uh, you know, many pieces of equipment, many chemi- you know, many different types of chemistries and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, through trial and error, uh, you know, develop my process for smoke odor removal. And it was really three steps. The first thing that we would do is we would deal with the primary sources of odor, which were horizontal surfaces and which were, were charred materials. And we would do something to those that I referred to as uh, su- suppression spraying or saturation spraying. I just wanted to be sure that I got odor control of those surfaces. And whether I did or whether I didn't was pretty easy to determine because, you know, I was going to suppress the odor and keep on suppressing it until I uh, it turned it positive. What I mean by that, smoke odor being negative. Uh, my calling it positive is where I can smell odor counteractant. I can't smell anything else. That's where I really want to be in that first step. The second thing that I did is I created a product that uh, it was a granular odor control product. And what happened was it was treated with materials which were volatile. So what we could do is spread this around, uh, you know, the affected areas. And, you know, we could sprinkle it or throw it or, or spread it. And what would happen was, you know, once it was spread, uh, the odor counteractant would volatilize. It would vaporize. It would come out of the surfaces, and it could then be moved by air currents. And in all these fire damage situations, for one reason or another, one reason being the, the ventilation system is in operation, another they're just natural air currents. So for one reason or another, there are air currents that are moving through in that house that are carrying uh, odor throughout the house. I would want those uh, air currents to, to also carry odor counteractant. So typically, my, my sniff test or my judgment point would be after applying steps one and two, I really wanted what I was deodorizing to be positive. I wanted to smell no smoke odor, 
and I wanted to smell odor counteract. And if I smelled any smoke odor getting through, I would go back and repeat steps one and two and make whatever adjustments were necessary. The third thing that I did uh, was thermal fogging. And what we did is we adapted equipment from the pest control industry and brought it into the field of, of odor removal. So we had a device which was capable of taking, uh, of, of duplicating the fire, producing some heat, producing some energy, producing some pressure, producing uh, you know, small droplet size, and we could duplicate what happened during the fire. And by thermally fogging an area, uh, what we could do is, is the, the, the fog droplets would work by the process of agglomeration. We would just you know, fill that area with fog, and over time what would happen is as the droplets would settle, they would uh, bring down airborne particulate with it. And by doing those three steps, we were able to guarantee uh, smoke odor removal. And, you know, our company, our service company was the first company in the world that guaranteed smoke odor removal. And, um, you know, the rest is history. Well, let me, all right, let me um, see if I understand. All right, so we're doing the odor removal, but now with respect to the cleaning of, of the, um, soot, etc. Is that going on? Is the first thing doing you're doing is trying to knock down the odor and then you're going to clean afterwards? Or are you cleaning before or are you cleaning during? Um, all the above. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tell me all more. The above, but generally speaking, my preference was to deodorize first and then clean after. Now, there were other situations where we might have to do some cleaning before we did deodorization or do it simultaneously, and all that depended really on the circ- on the specific circumstances. You know, in commercial uh, situations, you know, there may be you know a need to get the business back open, and you know, so we may do do things a little bit out of order. But it made more sense for the insurance company. It made more sense for the business. So, but my preference. Whenever I, you know, I, I had the ability to have my first choice was to deodorize first and then clean after. Okay. Now, that brings up a question, and, and I had a text on this, and I want to kind of rephrase it a little bit. Um, these these sponges that people use, the, the smoke sponges that people use after fire restoration, first of all, is it accurate what I've been told that they're overused and that really people need to consider whether it's the right time and place to use one of these? Uh, absolutely. First of all, there are no chemicals uh, in those sponges. There, there are no chemicals whatsoever. Hmm. And that material has an interesting history in that it was developed actually to be a mattress material. Hmm. And if you could imagine a loaf of bread, a loaf of white bread that hasn't been cut, and when we imagine this, this bread, uh, we have the crust, which is on the outside, and then we have the, the bread, which is on the inside. And that's really what that sponge-like material was like uh, when it was made. You have this crust on the outside, you have the, uh, the bread on the inside. And what happened was someone came up with the idea of utilizing these for cleaning after fire damage. And what they did was they cut the crust off, 
and now you had the porous material uh, on the inside, and they utilized that. So it's more of a wiping and, uh, and an absorption uh, type of cleaning process. They tend to work well when you have a dry, loose residue. They tend not to work well when you have a greasy residue. And many a paint job uh, has been ruined by... Uh, you know, people buying these things because they're sold as smoke cleanup sponges, so automatically uh, people buy them, they use them for that, and, and they actually make matters worse because they smear the residue around hmm. rather than um, removing it. And, and am, I, am I right that they're oftentimes referred to or, or sold as chem sponges, and that's just a misnomer? Correct. It's absolutely a misnomer. They're just uh, a rubber material. Interesting. Yeah, synthetic rubber material. Interesting. All right. Now, um, you brought up another question when you answered that question, and that is on, on a, a light, fluffy smoke, they work well. On a uh, smoke that's more, you know, uh, a little different type of smoke that's kind of heavier and, and more greasy, I guess, what do you use in that case? Well, I've got a couple of things that I would use. Um, I would say that the... My, my my first go-to dry cleaning technique on, on most fire restoration situations would be a lamb's wool duster. Uh, I really like those. Uh, they tend to work very, very well. They will remove uh, smoke residues that chem sponges will, will, will smear. Uh, another thing is there uh, is a crumbly wall cleaning product called Absarine. It, it, it's related to Play-Doh, actually. Uh, you know, Play-Doh started out as a crumbly wall cleaner and then ended up becoming a toy. And um, that works quite well on flat paint, you know, particularly with some fairly heavy residues, uh, you know, even greasy residues. It works quite well. Okay. And, Cliff, I've got a couple texts coming in. I just want to let everyone know we're, we're almost out of time, and we're going to have to continue this uh, because I've got – Four more pages of questions here for you. Uh, well, I've got. You know, if, if you want, we can clear up those. You know, we can clear up the test, uh, the text questions let's, if you want. Let's do that. And maybe we should just continue this conversation next week after we clear up these texts. Now, if you want, we can do that. I'm, I'm glad to. Uh, I'm glad to continue. I would love. Okay, to. so I think we're probably okay. You know, hopefully uh, we cleared up the one on the smoke sponges. They do not. Uh, contain any chemicals. They don't necessarily work better than other types of sponges. It's really just a matter of their texture. Uh, there are chloride strips used in remediation verification. How do they work? Um, they work pretty much like litmus paper does. You know, litmus paper measures, you know, the pH. Uh, these chloride strips measure the amounts of chlorides uh, that are present. And, um, you know, they can set certain levels. So that's generally how they're, they're done. They're used a lot by firms which, you know, specialize in electronics cleaning and electronics, you know, restoration, you know, just to uh, advise the owner of the equipment in question, you know, how severe, uh, you know, the potential risk is. Uh, as far as how, did, how do you deodorize uh structural framing so that it won't give off smoke odor. I think we've covered it, but you know, we'll cover it again. I think the first thing that we're going to want to do is suppression spray it. We're going to spray it with a 
water-based solution of odor counteractant, uh, and we want to be sure that it doesn't smell anymore. So we want to use a sufficient quantity of that 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 doesn't smell. Once we have deodorized it so that it doesn't smell, we'll remove any and all char, and then we'll respray it. And we just want to be sure that we've sprayed sufficient amount of odor counteractant on that so that um, it doesn't smell anymore. At that particular point, it could be coated, and in most situations, I would recommend a pigmented shellac. Uh, works very, very well. And in certain situations, if you want, there are odor counteractants that you can actually add to the uh, pigmented shellac that will, uh, you know, give you long-lasting odor removal, a little bit of insurance. And in certain situations, we'll use that in areas such as attics, uh, you know, where it might get hot and um, there's a potential of, uh, you know, recurrence of odor. Well, you know what? Before you answer that last one, Cliff, that's a question I had, and I think it's it's important for people to get to, to emphasize. Sometimes we think a smoke odor is gone, but then it, it it comes back. And can you explain why? Well, I think it comes back because it was probably never completely removed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know what happens is that. You know, there can be certain areas of the building that can be odor-prone. You know, HVAC system would be one, attic would be another. And I, I think in many situations, it may not have been found, Joe. Uh, you know, the, the people that are looking, making the inspection are just unfamiliar with it. So that, you know, oftentimes, like in water damages, out of sight, out of mind, same thing happens in a fire damage situation where you have odor and contamination out of sight, out of mind. If that's not dealt with, uh, you know, once everything else is, is cleaned up uh, and the building is closed up again, um, you know, the, the, it's not that it's reoccurring. It's just been there all the time and no one ever noticed it. You know, so a lot of times with these callbacks, it can be uh, a bunch of little issues that we'll call a cumulative problem where it's, you know, uh, several or, or many uh, little problem areas. In, in some situations, it can be a big problem area, you know, such as uh, you know, heating, ventilation, uh, air conditioning system, um, also insulation, you know, inside of wall cavities, you know, could be a problem. Uh, so a lot of the callbacks really deal with interstitial spaces, I think, as well, where smoke's inside of wall cavities and ceiling cavities, and the contractor um, might not have known it. And and does the season of the year affect things at all? I mean, if you got a hotter, humid day in the summer, or maybe you're opening up, you know, if the fire's in the summer, the windows and doors are open anyway, and then you start to close them in the winter, and maybe they notice the uh, odor a little more. Well, I think a couple things can happen. You know, typically our heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems were not meant to run with the windows open. And in certain situations, you know, people may open their windows. You know, I know my wife does it at night. You know, she opens our bedroom window and we leave the air conditioning on. So, you know, what happens is that can cause pressure changes that were not anticipated. Uh, so, you know, that that is one thing that, you know, can commonly occur. Okay, and then I see the question on HVAC systems. What I'd like to say is that, that next week, HVAC system contents 
um, and, and some other topics we haven't covered as, as closely as I would like to at least will be a part of next week's show. So we'll get you into some specifics on HVAC next week. And then the other one was just uh, the name or the spelling of the crumbly wall cleaner, Cliff. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spell it phonetically. So A like Alpha, B like Bravo, S like Sierra, O like Oscar, R like Romeo, E like Echo, N like November, E like Echo. Absurine. Great. Great stuff, Cliff. And great, great stuff on fire restoration here today. I'm going to call this one part one. Um, before we sign off for today, is there anything you'd like to add to what we discussed today? And then uh, next week we're going to finish this up. No, I, I think the only thing is if people would want to email us, you know, some specific questions, you know, in advance that they would like us to, you know, comment on, you know, we can be sure to, uh, you know, try to get them the answers to their questions. You know, I think sometimes what happens is you may have a path uh, of the interview, Joe, that you want to follow down. And then, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, a listener has a specific question and sometimes, uh, you know, the question kind of throws us off what, what you want to deal with. But I think if we know if they've got anything specific uh, that they want us to cover, uh, you know, if, if we knew in advance, it would be a little bit easier. We can be sure that, you know, we include it, uh, that, that we catch it during the interview. You read my mind on that. We can thread it right into the interview next week. So my email is joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Send me any questions you have, folks. I'll put them all together with the other questions for Cliff. And we'll be back next Friday at noon for uh, part two of our interview with the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, on fire restoration. I can't believe it's been eight years and we had not done this already, Cliff. It's just amazing. And I I appreciate you uh, your experience on this issue and sharing uh, so freely and openly all of your knowledge on the issue with our listeners. I think it's tremendous. So. Uh, I'm going to just wrap it up here by saying thanks to this week's guest, guest, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. We're going to get back with him for part two next Friday at noon. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next edition or episode of IAQ Radio. You've been-